You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week's guest is Michael Orlando. Michael is the acting director at the NCSC, the National Counterintelligence Security Center. So this is one of the three centers at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Mike spent his career in the Federal Bureau of Investigation working the counterterrorism and counterintelligence beats including, now listening to this for an interesting job, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Washington Field Office, Counterintelligence Division. This is the first in a series of podcasts that are going to touch upon the topic of cyber. I'm calling it Cyber August. I know that it's meant to be Cyber October, but here at the Spy Museum, we like to be a little bit different. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week's guest is Michael Orlando. Michael is the acting director at the NCSC, the National Counterintelligence Security Center. So this is one of the three centers at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Mike spent his career in the Federal Bureau of Investigation working the counterterrorism and counterintelligence beats, including now listening to this for an interesting job, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Washington Field Office, Counterintelligence Division. This is the first in a series of podcasts that are going to touch upon the topic of cyber. I'm calling it Cyber August. I know that it's meant to be Cyber October, but here at the Spy Museum, we like to be a little bit different. This episode is brought to you by RISE a science-based app that makes it easy to improve your sleep to increase your daily energy. Are you tired of pseudoscientific techniques that all but ensure that you'll be pounding the vending machine at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for candy? Are you tired of hitting up Starbucks for a venti mocha frappa dappuccino to try to get you through the rest of the day? If so, turn to rise. It uses a scientific, fact-based approach to help you get the sleep your body needs. It's built around the two core principles that sleep researchers agree most affect how we feel and perform, sleep debt and circadian rhythm. 
go to risescience.com forward slash spycast and download the Rise app today to try it free for seven days. So I guess the first question would be, out of all of the multiple things that you're dealing with as the acting director for the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, what are the things that most concern you? Andrew, first, thanks for having me on. A great opportunity to talk about the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, NCSC. What really keeps me up at night is the threat from China, the Chinese government. I am concerned the American people and our allies do not really understand the threat. And if we don't get them to understand the threat, it may be too late by the time they do. There's a lot at risk to our democracy, just not the theft of government information or our technologies or IP, but our way of life. The Chinese government definitely would like to challenge us and our ideals of freedom. And I think it's important. It is a whole of society problem that we really need to work together on, not just as Americans, but with our allies as well, because we're all in this environment. So that's really what causes me concern is in making sure people have that awareness so we can kind of work together on this important issue. And just to pick up on that point, what is the threat? What is the nature of the threat that you would like the American people and allies to understand? If you just look at the public messaging from the Chinese government, particularly Xi Jinping, he has no interest of having a win-win relationship with democracies. He sees China uh, as leading the world and having an authoritarian view. And he's going to do that through acquiring our technology and our research through any legal means. I think people just don't understand that it isn't really a win-win relationship. And when you look at those plans that he has laid out, whether it's made in China 2025 or his ambitions for China to arrive in 2049 as the ultimate superpower, our interests aren't really being taken into an account. And do you see the nature of that threat as being driven mainly by ideology, like communist ideology, or is it more old-fashioned great power politics, or is it something else? For Xi Jinping, it, it is the survival of the Communist Party, and he realizes that China is a rising power. And part of that technology and technology acquisition will really be the currency of governments of who will be the superpower. And he's really trying to take advantage of that. And unfortunately, if he had a democratic view, I think that would all be okay that China rises. But uh, he sees it as it's all about the survival and that authoritarian view and cutting apart democracy helps with the survival of that party. Where are the main focuses of that threat? Are we talking economic espionage, industrial espionage, intellectual property, all of the above? So it's all of the above. You know, 20 years ago, we were mostly concerned about the theft of government information or our classified information. And over time, it has evolved into not just the theft of that information, but our economic IP and, and trade. And it's also been done very illicitly for a number of years. And then with the birth of cyber, it made it a lot more easier to acquire information through, through cyber theft. But also what's concerning me now is there's a number of legal ways that they are going about acquiring our technology by acquisition and mergers or joint ventures that force companies to give their technology over. And so that is particularly concerning when you get into like the emerging technologies of AI and biotechnologies that really will drive who the superpowers are. And so they're using a whole host of tools to do that through illicit, using their intelligence services, cyber espionage, and then just the legal acquisition mergers and taking advantage of talent programs as well. I guess just to go up to 30,000 feet, what is the NCSC? So for people that are out there, they're some of them are familiar with the CIA, the FBI, but what is the NCSC? Where does it come from? What's its role and what is it you're doing? 
So NCSC is a center under the office of the Director of National Intelligence. The Director of National Intelligence is the president's cabinet-level official for intelligence, and we are one component of her office that covers counterintelligence and security. And our main role is to integrate the counterintelligence and security community and work with national policy and help set strategy. We also have a role in outreach to U.S. government, private sector, and others to educate people on the threats from foreign intelligence services and to offer them some mitigation. And then our third part is we're responsible to do public warnings when there is a threat. For instance, during the election, uh, my predecessor, Bill Avenina, was on TV talking a lot about foreign influence. From an evolution standpoint, the genesis of the center goes all the way back to 1994. President Bill Clinton had signed a, a presidential directive. This came out of the Alder James espionage case, he felt that FBI and CIA needed to cooperate more fully. And so he had directed that they do an exchange of officers and that a counterintelligence center be built and that they would be a, a policy board to talk about differences and priorities. And then he issued a second presidential directive in 2001. In the turn of the century, he believed that the counterintelligence workforce needed to get together for the evolving threats. And at that point, he started our predecessor organization, the National Counterintelligence Executive, and an office to go along with that, which would, again, do the integration function of the mission, private sector outreach. And then in 2002, Congress solidified that all into law. And then over time, we brought together not just the counterintelligence, but the security functions of our special security center and our center for security evaluation were merged in. And for your listeners, our, our special security center does security clearance uh, reform. The DNI herself is the security executive agent for the U.S. government. She's responsible for making sure we protect our secure facilities, our classified information. And that center was essentially her staff. That is now part of NCSC, and the main issue we work on there is uh, security clearance reform and, our, and securing those facilities. And then for the Center for Security Evaluation, that center goes back 30 years. It's not very well known, but that came out of the fallout from the U.S. Embassy being built in Moscow when we discovered the Russians had penetrated with all sorts of listening devices. And Congress had felt that there needed to be an entity that integrated the intelligence community's view to help consult the Department of State. And that's what that center does. And that center still exists today. And they work in partnership with the intelligence community, the Department of State, private sector, and academics to research ways that our adversaries can compromise our sensitive information overseas. And then they take those lessons learned and bring them back for our facilities here. And then lastly, in 2018, Congress decided that the director of NCSC should be a presidential appointee that is confirmed by, by the Senate, essentially making that official the head of counterintelligence for the U.S. government as the chief advisor to the DNI and the president. And one of the things that I was interested in when you were speaking there was, you know, with counterintelligence, we had Frank Figluzzi on not long ago, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI. And he was talking about how that position at the FBI is responsible for counterintelligence across the US government, but that's more at the applied operational level, whereas you're more dealing with policy. Help our listeners understand how, like, what's your day-to-day -day with the current holder of that position, or how does it all kind of shake out? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So and the director of NCSC, we're more strategy and policy. We integrate people. We don't have operational or investigative authorities. The FBI has special agents that investigate. Our CIA colleagues have officers who collect information overseas. We don't do any of that. We're able to bring people together to talk about issues and do policy. So for instance, we're responsible to do a national threat assessment. We do that in partnership with the IC agencies, FBI, CIA. DOD. And then once we identify the threats, we then do a national strategy in partnership with the FBI, CIA, and DOD so that the community has a, an agreed upon strategy and priorities to work on. And then on tough issues, we corral the community to talk about those issues. So over the years with China, we've helped bring the community together. Uh, so for instance, a few years ago, we had found a potential vulnerability in our information infrastructure. We were able to bring the community together to use their own authorities and capabilities to address that problem. Recently, some of your listeners may be aware of the anomalous health incidents where some of our officers have become ill overseas. We play an integration role. We help the community integrate information and they use their authorities to investigate and work on those issues there. But specifically to your question is like, what is the difference between the FBI counterintelligence uh, assistant director and my role here? I'm more of that integrator policy advisor to the DNI where the FBI is responsible for the investigations and operations domestically. He is the chief spy catcher and the FBI is really the the lead counterintelligence agency domestically, which is able to bring the investigative components from the military and others to work together here domestically using those authorities there. And our relationship is we, we talk weekly where we partner with each other and make sure we understand how we can help each other out. And I would say it's similar with CIA and our DOD partners as well. My role is really to be a facilitator, augment their efforts, fill gaps for them, partner with them and facilitate them. To me, it sounds like one of those jobs where I just have this scene. It's a Sunday afternoon. The chicken is uh, sitting out to rest. You smell the roast potatoes and then the phone goes or someone comes to the door and you just think to yourself, oh my goodness, what the heck is it now? Is that, is that how it is for you? Well, that's probably how it is for my partner at the FBI because okay. he owns you know, the risk. I'm more policy and strategy. You know, when I walk in on Monday morning is where when I find what the concerning issues are there. So I would say he has the harder job. Who are some of your main interlocutors in the U.S. government? So you mentioned the the CIA, the FBI assistant director, and then upwards, I'm assuming you report directly to the director of national intelligence. Help us understand the kind of network that you're involved in on a daily or weekly basis? It's a fairly robust network given everything that we do at the center. So I report to the DNI herself. And then I have frequently on the counterintelligence side with FBI, CIA, all the military components from Air Force OSI to Navy Criminal Investigative Service, the Army Investigative Services, NSA as well. But we also have a security mission as well. And so I have relationships on the security side with all of those agencies but we also do a lot with federal partners and trying to educate them insider threat, helping them build programs, educating them on CI. So we also talk to what we call the non-Title uh, 50 organizations from Commerce, FAA. And so frequently be able to engage with those as well. And then Congress certainly has a lot of interest in what we are doing. And so there's meetings and briefings with them as well. And then certainly I have a lot of outreach, given our outreach role, talking to the private sector and industries about the threats that they face. It sounds like a really 
intellectually stimulating and rewarding position because you're seeing across the whole sort of spectrum of the US government and you're trying to get people to sort of work together and talk to each other and make things happen. Is that is that how you find it? That's exactly right. I operate at a very high level. I don't get to see what the cases are, but I understand the broader trends and then help bring those partners together on on areas where there needs to be partnership to help them collaborate or provide resources for them to do it. So it is a very fascinating and interesting job. You have to be read on many, many issues, not just counterintelligence, but security and insider threat. And, and then the new issue is supply chain risk management as well. So it's, it's, it's very diverse topics that I cover every day. There's a really broad spectrum of issues and threats involved here. And to what extent are you working with traditional counterintelligence? And to what extent is it something new or is it just the area or the domain that's new so cyber's new quantum's new but it's the same techniques i help our listeners understand that a lot of them will be people that have read all the kind of classic counterintelligence books from the cold war and stuff but help us understand the kind of world that you're looking out on at the moment so I cover a range of issues, and so I will go from one meeting talking about risks to our supply chain and then going over to another issue such as anomalous health issues. But broadly, you know, we do still deal with a lot of traditional counterintelligence issues. We have two dedicated directorates that do counterintelligence and support to the community, and most of what they focus on are the priority issues that percolate up that are hard problems to solve, and that's where they engage to help try to provide resources or expertise on those matters there. But essentially, it's the, the agencies using their, their own authorities and us helping them integrate on those issues to move forward on those things to solve those problems. Because if they could just do it by themselves, we just wouldn't be needed. And just going back to 2001, where President Clinton saw the need uh, for that integration, um, it certainly has, has played out in the last 20 years is that the environment of counterintelligence has become so complex from hey, the traditional uh, espionage to economic espionage to the various vectors that come to us from cyber human and technical, it has certainly become a very challenging area than where it was maybe 20, 30 years ago, right? My predecessors who probably worked the Soviets, they had to track down the traditional intelligence officer, maybe the, the, the non-official cover. Well, the environment has changed where we still have the traditional threats, but now we have a whole host of asymmetric threats that we're trying to run down with the same size workforce that we had 20 years ago. That's fascinating. You have these like one page bulletins, fact sheets on the topic of safeguarding our future. And one of them that I read was on quantum. So just on what you were saying there, is there an extent to which the, you know, say the FBI hits institutional history or the way the agents are trained, it's still really a continuation of that kind of Cold War, traditional, the Americans stand beaming out, chasing people around Washington. Is there still some of that kind of like mindset or culture? And I mean, just thinking about this fact sheet on quantum, you know, like if it was me, I would be like, you know, I'm an FBI agent and then someone's talking about blooming quantum. Like what the heck is going on here? I mean, there's a lot to get up to speed with and a lot of things to get your head around. I mean, it sounds super challenging. I hope they're paying you very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's why the people who like working counterintelligence really like it because it's challenging. It's very different than any other threat that you're involved in. I would say comparing the cases that 
I was involved in or got briefed in in counterintelligence versus counterterrorism. The counterintelligence cases are far more interesting and challenging. And I would say my peers who worked counterterrorism, who went over to counterintelligence, feel the same way. It is very diverse. You know, one day you are trying to understand the traditional threat of you know, Russian intelligence officers who are maybe stationed here in the embassy. And then the next day you're trying to understand, as you said, the quantum threat and how Chinese and others are trying to require that using asymmetric threats. But I do think you talked about our publications. I, I think our publications have done a lot to help put a spotlight on these issues. I'd, I've helped the community bring resources and solutions to it because you know we simply can't kind of disrupt our way out of these problems. We're not going to arrest everyone who's done this. We need the whole of society to understand some of these to better. I would say we need to build resiliency into the system where companies who are involved in quantum or other things that are important are defending themselves while at the same time we're trying to disrupt those bad actors. I'm wondering as well, like with the the change in nature of, of counterintelligence and the various threats that you face, say for the FBI where you come from, is there any mileage in doing counterterrorism for one post and then doing law enforcement and then going back to counterintelligence or has counterintelligence just become so specialized that it's it's actually product differentiation or, or it's like a football player, you know, say soccer, where I'm from, get people that are good at defending, people that are good at attacking and people that are good at linking it up, but it's very difficult to be all three. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, the skill set that's necessary to deal with the challenges that are coming over the horizon. So it's a little bit of all of that, like particularly in the FBI when you're a special agent, you've got to learn the core skills of being an investigator from how to do all those things. And whether you work criminal investigative matters or counterterrorism or counterintelligence, there's some baseline there. But when you move into the counterintelligence workplace, there are other things that they do there from offensive operations, from trying to disrupt them through recruitments and, and other operations to arresting people in those cases are a little bit more challenging than I would say your criminal investigations because the standards of proof that you have to show and the protection of classified material and going about that creates a number of challenges. But I think what we have found is having a, a diverse workforce, those who have been uh, career-long CI professionals who understand the threats is very helpful, but also being able to bring in investigators from criminal investigations or CT who have a different mindset to look at the problem from a different perspective is also helpful as well. And so it's the blending of all that that I think is what's really needed right now, but also understanding that we do need to Arrest people when needed and, and recruit sources that can help us. But we also have to be get much better in the partnership with the private sector to get them to educate them to become better ways of defending themselves because we're simply not going to be able to do it all ourselves. And to the extent they can protect themselves, will I think, go a long way. You were talking about the whole of society there, and this made me think about one of the analogies that I've kind of come up with in my head. And tell me if you agree with this. To me, cyber has done for espionage what aeroplanes did for warfare because until the invention of the aeroplane, people behind the front lines weren't on the front lines, but then there was a possibility for them to be. And with espionage, 
with cyber. I've got a cell, an iPhone in my pocket right now. We're carrying around these devices that are just emitting information and knowledge and so forth. So it seems to me that everybody in this country or across the world, like everybody's on the front lines of this now. And say in the United States, how do you get 360 plus million people to, to kind of be those cyber citizens that are kind of doing what they need to do so that the whole of society approach works. I think the recent ransomwares and cyber attacks are helping us get there, unfortunately. And to your point, I do think cyber has transformed the counterintelligence environment. And we had done a publication back in 2011 about how China was using cyber to collect economic information, which really put a spotlight for the first time on them. And I was reading that document the other day, and it was really insightful that everything that those authors wrote, you know, 10 years ago is all true today. That cyber is this really low risk operation that gives them a high payoff, very difficult to defend against. And so we saw, we have to work on that, but the other threats haven't gotten away. So now we're spreading our workforce a little bit on these diverse threats. And if we're not able to build uh, better security into cyber, it's going to be very difficult to kind of defend against this threat. And so we need everyone who's involved in that to understand that part, share information, making sure we're building secure software and using good tradecraft for people who are involved in intelligence uh, to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. Things have transformed. And I think the intelligence community has kind of got their head around that and working on those solutions to operate in the environment that we're now in that we weren't in 20 years ago. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Let's talk a little bit more about the outreach role that you've spoken about. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned academia, tech companies and so forth. What, what kind of work is the NCSC doing on that front? So as I mentioned earlier, you know, part of the law is for us to go out and do, do outreach. We're a very small center. So we're not able to go out all over the country. So we try to stay focused. We do a number of things. We do a number of unclassified briefings. We have the ability to bring in the private sector to do classified briefings. We oftentimes partner with the FBI or DHS and others to amplify their message and and assist them as well. But we want the FBI and DHS to be the ones that the companies come to We're more of a higher level message to get the message out there for everyone. And over the last two years, we've done about 300 outreach events, reaching 40,000 executives, working in partnerships with Chamber of Commerce, academia, and others to really try to get high level messages out there to the audience. And we also do some publications as well. Uh, And then moving out into the future, we're trying to get a little bit more focus on where we deem our 
the real threats that we think we need to put a spotlight on, which we call the emerging technologies. And could you tell us a little bit more about some of those emerging technologies, some of those threats? Again, I looked at some of your literature and there's a, a really diverse range from deep fakes to social media deception to quantum. There's a lot going on there. Help us understand some of those threats. There's a lot of threat. And when we do some analysis on it, when you look at these emerging technologies, what we view as artificial intelligence, quantum computing, autonomous systems, biotechnology, semiconductors as that building block. When you look at those technologies, they will have a drastic impact on both our economy and our national security. And so it is extremely important that we remain the leaders in these industries, because if we don't, it will give China or others the ability to eclipse us as a superpower. And although these technologies can bring great things to us, there's also a bad side to these things as well. And, and we have to make sure that we defend against those bad things. But also in being a leader in this, we also know that the Chinese and Russian want to be leaders in this as well. And they will try to steal our information as they've done other things. And so we want to make sure that we're bringing awareness to everyone that, yes, this is important. But we have to protect ourselves as well. It sounds a little bit to me like, in some respects, the NCSC is doing think tank type work. It's, it's thinking about the different things that are going on and it's trying to find synergies and points of comparison and points of difference and so forth. Is that a kind of fair statement, partly, or am I kind of off the mark? Partly. You know, we don't do a lot of in-house analysis. We find the experts in the community and then corral them together or pick their brain to find out where they think those things are, and then we amplify it from there. So, for instance, in biotechnology, bioeconomies, we have partnered with the FBI, who has an agent who's really an expert in those things. And we've learned a lot about how the Chinese are trying to take our genomic data, both legally and illegally, and gotten that message out to really kind of get attention on that you know, specific issue. And one of the things that I love about our podcast is that the people that listen to it can range from the people that are working these issues and the IC to your average person on the street who likes a good spy story or who wants to learn about intelligence and espionage. So just so we're not leaving anybody behind, could you just really briefly tell us what quantum is and what bioeconomics is? <laughs> Great question. Sorry, yeah, I, just, uh, I, just, I just don't want to leave anyone behind. So when we get into quantum, it's really about speed of computing. And, and whoever has that advantage will be able to break encryption. Right? And if you don't have quantum, you won't be able to protect your information. So it's extremely important that you have that edge. When you get into bioeconomies or biotechnology, think about precision medicine. If I'm able to get your DNA, I can analyze it and determine that you may have a history of cancer in your family, and we may be able to give you precision medicine to make sure that that doesn't develop or to cure you. That side also has a you know an nefarious side to it as well, is that you know I can create a toxin that only attacks you or surveil, surveil you, and so that's what those topics are, are, are really about. And the particular issue with biotechnology, if you get into the DNA and the acquiring of that. A concerning part is the Chinese through legal means, hospitals have partnered with them to acquire the DNA to do low-cost genomic sequencing, which is nothing really wrong with that. It's a low-cost model. But China has acquired a lot of our DNA through this process, and that information is not necessarily going to be shared with us. And 
that diverse data that have will help them with artificial intelligence and other things. And we've known that the Chinese government has used DNA surveillance on the Uyghurs in the Western provinces of China. And we find that all concerning. And if you're an intelligence professional, if you think about all the data breaches we've had from OPM to others, and your DNA potentially being had, there's a lot of information that the Chinese government has on our intelligence professionals. And quantum, that refers to the speed of computing? Speed of computing, the ability to break encryption, maintain encryption. So we're talking like with quantum, there would be a computer powerful enough to go through every possible permutation of passwords so that you could you could break it down? Correct. Okay. For John and Jane Q public out there, you know, do, do they need to worry? Are they, is their genomic data now sitting in a Communist Party database somewhere? Or yeah, help us understand the scale and scope of the threat. So for the ordinary citizen, I think they need to be concerned because it's not, this isn't just an issue for national security or for an intelligence professional. If China or others become the leaders in bioeconomies or others, those are American jobs as well. So it will impact our, our economy. It's a, a two-headed issue. And then from just a national security matter, is, you know, there's a recent article about how BGI, a Chinese company acquired, did some testing and then shared that data with the People Liberation Army for their own testing. And so I'm just not sure people want their data, their DNA used in these sort of things. There doesn't have that transparency. I'd also say that the future president of the United States is out there and they have that person's DNA and information and that's concerning. One of the questions that I find quite interesting to ask people like yourself is, how do you keep your head above water? Like, how do you not just throw your arms up in despair and open up the liquor cabinet and start pounding the scotch when you're doing this? Like, how do you be focused and optimistic? And yeah, there is a better future to come when you're dealing with all of this rather murky stuff. So when you're a career, you know, uh, FBI professional or an intelligence community, you're used to dealing with problems all the time. Everything you're working on is a challenge. So you get accustomed to that. But the real key is, is teamwork. We have a fantastic team at NCSC where we're able to share that burden. And I would say that had been my experience at the FBI that I've always worked with a fantastic team and you're able to work as a team to kind of share that burden and, and delegate and, and work with each other. You just don't own it all by yourself there. And that's why I think the work at NCSC is so important because when you talk about the teamwork that you have in individual agencies, we're trying to bring the teamwork together as a community as a whole. And for the various functions that you have, so critical infrastructure, U.S. supply chains, U.S. economy, American democracy, cyber and technical operations, again, we could easily do a podcast on each one of them. But I guess one of my questions is, is cyber a thread? It seems to me that cyber is a thread that runs through all of them. And cyber doesn't exclusively deal with everything in all five of those domains. But if we just maybe focus on cyber, we can start prizing apart some of the other ones. Could you could you tell us about that, about cyber and that thread? So cyber to me is a, a vector of how an intelligence service or a criminal actor goes about doing what they want to do. And so certainly trying to address the cyber problem is important. But I think it's important to know that the intelligence service doesn't exclusively rely on, on cyber. If you look at some of the espionage cases that are out there that had cyber intrusions, some of those cyber intrusions were enabled by a human insider 
who was able to plug something into the computer. So we shouldn't exclusively focus on cyber and we need to look at the whole threat and that yeah, we have to recognize that intelligence services are, are essentially this well-paid, well-trained criminal enterprise, and they will create you know all sorts of ways of doing things if we just focus on one and eliminate one vector of a threat. I want to turn a little bit now to talk about the Insider Task Force. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. And uh, I believe it was a 2011 WikiLeaks, Bradley Manning leaked all this information, and President Obama decided that there should be an executive order that stood up uh, an insider threat task force that would be housed at the ODNI in partnership with the FBI, and that every government agency needed to have an insider threat program. And so the insider threat task force works with all government agencies to set policies, standards, training, a maturity framework, and to do assessments on these programs. And I would say over the last 10 years, they've done a great job of setting up these programs and government agencies that deal with classified information. And now that program is an evolving where we're trying to work with the private sector, where we've done some publications on insider threats to critical infrastructure. And the other thing we're trying to do now is really move towards how do you get left of the issue. The initiation of those insider threat programs was really focused on computer monitoring. And I would say in the private sector, insider threat is this dirty word and people think it's just about monitoring your employees. I would argue that, no, it's really about protecting your employees and that computer monitoring is one potential tool that you can use, but not the tool. And what we're finding is if you can get early into the HR process and make sure you're hiring people who have high ethics, and then you create an organization culture where people are happy and you're able to address their, their issues, and have good leadership, you may be able to identify issues early before they become a problem. And so that's where we're trying to head as we involve the program is to get into that behavioral analysis and educate people on that. And so I think if you look at espionage cases over the years, oftentimes in those interviews, there was some sort of issue that caused that person to do something and it had to be just addressed that we may have been able to kind of get them off the road early. And what role do historical case studies play in all of this or in the training or in the education? So here at the Spy Museum, we have an exhibit on Hanson, Ames and Philby. Do you discuss those types of figures or is it something different? Yes. So whether it's in insider threat training or just basic counterintelligence training, cases are always used um, as an illustration of effective cases or how people have done things. I've known in the past people have done studies on what causes people to commit espionages. And so these things are often talked about as things to learn from. We're hopefully going to do a future podcast on this, but tell us a little bit more about the Wall of Spies. So at NCSC, we have an exhibit called the Wall of Spies, and it doesn't cover every espionage case, but we have over 200 examples of, of espionage that started you know, from the beginning of our country in the Revolutionary War up to current times. Uh, and I find it, it's very informative. And it, for our professionals, it really gives them a quick oversight of everything that has happened uh, over the years. And it's a constant reminder to our employees about the threat of espionage and doing the right thing. And it's also just a great place for people to kind of socialize and kind of celebrate our history and the work that we do. Will it ever be going on the road? Will anyone who's not in the community ever be able to see it, a museum near them? So we're looking to put uh, the museum online so people can see the different exhibits, but I'm happy to host anybody for a tour as well. I just want to pivot now to just discuss a little bit more about your backstory and coming to this position. I mean, there's a lot there that we can dig into, the CIA, the military, the various things you've done in the FBI. Help our listeners just get a sense of your 
career trajectory? How did you end up over at the NCSC? So over 20 years, military intelligence and law enforcement, but spent most of it in the FBI doing counterintelligence. In the early 2000s, I worked on a, a multi-agency task force uh, in the Western Pacific trying to counter China's influence. And I would say from my view, a lot of that, the great work we did on that task force really illuminated what we're seeing today and helped us understand some of the tradecraft of the Chinese intelligence service and how they go about influencing. And then I, I had the opportunity in, I think it was 2013, to work on the Benjamin Bishop espionage case. He was a contractor at Pacific Command at the time. He took information, who we ultimately arrested and was convicted of taking of that information. And then in 2017, when I was the assistant special agent in charge at the Washington field office, oversaw the Maria Patina case, which many people are familiar with, unregistered foreign agent of the Russian government. And then I helped stand up what is now the Iran Mission Center at the FBI, which at that time was the Iran Threat Task Force, in which the FBI was trying to look at a, a multidiscipline approach to that problem, bringing together counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and cyber to attack that problem. And then I did a tour over at counterterrorism, which was you know certainly a, a great tour and, and fascinating. And I was involved in such things as the Pensacola attack and many other domestic terrorism and international terrorism incidents. And then as that assignment wrapped up, there was an opportunity here at, at NCSC. And it was a good opportunity for me to get back to counterintelligence. And for me, the recognition of the private sector, the public really need to be educated to defend themselves. For the Maria Bettina case, could you tell our listeners more about that? Is there anything about that case that is not out there that you would like to share with our listeners? So I would say uh, what I thought was informative about the Maria Bettina case was that I think for the most part, people think as the Russian threat in very traditional intelligence officers operating outside the embassy. And in this case, it showed an example of an asymmetric threat from the Russian intelligence service. And so I thought that was something that was eye-opening for people to understand that there was other ways of them going about doing things. But Maria Bettina was a student who was really trying to work her way into political circles and acquire information and trying to influence government. Basically, use, for lack of a better word, cover was this kind of gun rights thing where she was you know, looking for gun rights and from that was able to make ties into organizations and meet people of interest to kind of get influence and then work with the Russian government. Here at the Spy Museum, we have an exhibit on this and in the documentary that we have attached to that, Jack Barsky, he talks, you know, he's he's kind of disparaging of Maria Bettina and the Russian 10, you know, people like me, we were highly trained and carefully selected. This is like Keystone Cop stuff. What's your kind of view on that? Well, whether it's Keystone Cops or not, whether the person is well-trained or not, I think it creates challenges for the counterintelligence community because it just adds another target, another threat vector that you have to, to counter. Uh, I would say if you go back to the Cold War, we knew there was a certain number of Soviets in, in the embassy, and we just had to cover down on that set, set number. Now you have that set number plus all these asymmetric actors who are kind of quote unquote untrained who can still do harm to you as well. And it becomes very difficult to assess whether they're a threat or not, given that they're probably like a legitimate academic or student who's moonlighting for the intelligence service creates its challenges for you. One of the other questions that I had was, correct me if I'm wrong, you were formerly in charge of counterintelligence for the Washington field office. Is that correct? So I was the assistant special agent in charge for counterintelligence at the Washington field office, and I covered Russia and our global programs. 
Sounds like a nightmare, that job. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty target-rich environment around here, right? Yep. And it was uh, around 2016 as well. And so it certainly was a challenging time to work that threat. Here at the Spy Museum, we try to look at the popular culture surrounding this and then also the the history and the reality of it. So, you know, for people that watch the Americans, and I don't know if you've seen it, but those types of things, what's it actually like to be working counterintelligence for the Washington field office? I would say working counterintelligence anywhere in the Bureau has been very fascinating. There are great cases out there all over the place. I think people focus in on Washington because it's the capital, and it's certainly an interesting place as well. Uh, I would say that I found the Washington field office to work there to be very dynamic. There was more work than you can figure out what to do with. Worked with great people. We had a great team, great supervisors, doing everything from trying to address the traditional Russian threat, the technical aspects of them to the asymmetric threat, and also trying to bring very emerging uh, investigative techniques to this problem to really counter the Russians. What was like the highlight? What was the one issue or case that you worked where you were like, yes, what gave you the most satisfaction? It doesn't have to be one and we'll have to get rid of the rest, but what's a particular one that sticks in your memory? So I get asked this question all the time. And so it's a little bit challenging to answer because, you know, part of my work has been classified, right? And so I have to stick with the unclassified answers. But I would say really over my career, it's been working with the people. I've worked with some really fantastic agents and analysts and support people, uh, not just in the FBI, but in NCIS and OSI and the CIA. And so that has been really rewarding those relationships and the ability to kind of spend my career with some talented people has been most rewarding. You kind of forget about the cases and everything else. It's the quality of work that you remember. And whenever I speak to people who have worked in the New York field office, you know, it's almost like East Coast, West Coast rap. There's this kind of DC, New York thing going on. What's your views on that as someone that worked in the Washington office? Having never been a New York agent, but uh, worked with New York agents, you know, New York has this the mindset of, hey, we're the New York office and we do what we want. And I think sometimes that works to their advantage. And, and I've always applauded their effort for being a little bit of the renegade office at times, because sometimes that's how you get things done. And is there a sense that with the, the technological developments that have taken place that a lot of the action is Silicon Valley or Seattle or, or is it kind of just more of a complicated picture now? So it's certainly complicated, but given the threat environment that we've talked about, cyber, the asymmetric threats, the interest in things beyond classified information and government information to everything from technology to seeds. Anywhere you go in the country, you're going to find fascinating and interesting work that's going to be very challenging. So I would say for anyone who's maybe stuck in an area in like Iowa that they think there's nothing going on, I'm sure Iowa has some fantastic case going on and there's a threat there that's really interesting and challenging for them to work on. We've got an exhibit where we're looking at economic espionage in Iowa where people are trying to get grains and seeds yeah. and so forth. And that goes to that asymmetric threat, right? We're not just looking at the classified, but here I believe in the case you're referencing, the Chinese government was trying to uh, acquire seeds that had been genetically modified to be more drought resistance. And so that is the type of threat that we're up against is now we're trying to defend the loss of seeds. And for someone like yourself, do you have a target on your back because of your position or is that something you don't want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if I'm a target, I'm a target. I would say when you grow up in the counterintelligence community, you grow up with a certain mindset, 
because you're the spy catcher. And so you understand how you go about trying to surveil the adversary and you know that the adversaries can do the same to you. And so you look at things from a different perspective from how you operate on a computer, when you go out overseas, how you handle yourself. And so you kind of grow up with a certain mindset there. And it certainly is challenging because you're privy to understanding how a sophisticated threat operates, where I think the general public doesn't have that same view. I, mean, I think the public understands the cyber threat to a certain extent, but doesn't understand the larger threat, particularly if you're a business person traveling overseas to Russia and you have something of interest. I think they're a bit disadvantaged, which is why we do a lot of the outreach we do to try to educate the public. And I know that the FBI for years have really tried to work with the communities to do that as well. Say there's a listener out there and the IC and there's, they're not trained in counterintelligence or spy catching like you, but there's someone that just something doesn't sit right with them. I guess the question is, as an experienced spy catcher, can, can you pick up on when someone is not kind of on the level or, or are there particular giveaways or things that, other than the obvious, you know, they're speaking in Russian on the phone to someone and, you know, they're driving a new Rolls Royce into the, you know, Langley or something like that. Yeah. I would just say as a, just a career FBI agent and just law enforcement in general, you know, we're taught to read people, interview people, and over years you just get experienced in just seeing something that's just quite not right. But I would say for the, for the listeners, if you want to have a counterintelligence mindset, really think about your cyber hygiene from, do you have good email security? Do you have strong passwords? Those things will keep you safe on the internet. Not 100% will minimize the risk to you, patch your system. And then if you travel overseas, I would say do not bring your electronics. And if you have to bring electronics, uh, you know, make sure you don't have any sensitive data that you don't want lost on there. Understand that foreign governments have the ability to surveil you, to enter your hotel, get on your computer systems a lot easier than anything that's going to happen to you here. And so I would say those are some basic tips. But also in addition, you know, we're a social media generation. And we've seen the Chinese and Russian government try to target people on LinkedIn and other social media platforms. And I certainly understand that the purpose of those platforms are to connect. Uh, I would just say be mindful that those those programs, you're being targeted. So when you get a LinkedIn to ask you to travel overseas or do an interview or provide information, just make sure you're able to do some due diligence on that before you execute those things. Because those have been done. Government employees have been targeted and others as well in those platforms. Could I just pull on that thread a little bit? Could you talk about the Nevernight connection? So that was a video that NCSC did in partnership with the FBI, in which we took a real world example of how a government employee was targeted on social media, on LinkedIn, I believe. And then that video was supposed to go out to inform the community and the American public of those threats. And so I think that video did a lot to help bring attention to this issue. I guess one of the other questions that I had was, with China, I know that you, like you've mentioned China several times, and I know that you have worked that threat and you have been to China. Is there anything similar to the Havana syndrome for, you know, agents or officers that are going to China, or, or is it that's not really so much of an issue? The reason I talk about China so much, I don't want anyone to get the impression that Russia or others aren't a threat, but when you look at the threat posed by China, it eclipses the other threats. You have China, this is this rising power that's going to challenge us economically and national security, where even when you look at Russia, it's a declining power who is just 
challenging us. And so we want to make sure we bring attention to the important issue of China. When it comes to anomalous health incidents, I can't speak too much about that. It's just if you're in a government employee and you feel that uh, you have symptoms of this, I would recommend that you report it to your government agency. I would say the intelligence community is taking it very seriously. We're working hard to figure out what's going on and how we can address this issue. I just want to pick up on security clearance and reform in the in the whole process. I believe that it's kind of quite a labyrinthine process. Yes. You could say that. <laughs> yeah, yes. So security clearance reform, as I said earlier, the, the DNI is the security executive and she's responsible for oversight. And in uh, 2018, we would, I think, all of us who are part of that process from DNI to OPM and DOD, who's the biggest customer of it, would say the system was a bit broken. We had massive backlogs of probably 700,000 employees. And depending if it was a, a secret or top secret clearance, it could take you a year to get your clearance. And so collectively, we initiated a program called Trusted Workforce 2.0, where we were going to revamp this program. And to date, we've been able to get that 700,000 backlog down to 200,000, which is what we call pretty good, a steady state. And we've got the numbers down from six months to a year to process your clearance to somewhere between you know, 50 to 75 days, depending on your secret or top secret. So we've made some real progress there. And the other thing we had found is that our policies uh, were a bit convoluted and the agencies were executing them in different ways and the technology was antiquated. And so working in partnership with OPM and OMB and DOD, we have consolidated and aligned our policies. DOD is working real hard on the technology piece and then we're, or we're moving into the next phase, the implementation phase. And a, a critical component of that is what we call the continuous evaluation or vetting, where we are doing away with the periodic uh, five-year or 10-year background check, where you will routinely get an automated uh, records check. And so we'll be able to identify threats much earlier, opposed to waiting for five or 10 years. That will free up resources to work the initial investigations and do other things. So we're making some progress on this. It's a really challenging issue, but really proud of the team that's working on it. And the partnerships between DOD and OPM and OMB has been fantastic. I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask was, what are, if someone's like, you know, Director Orlando's inspired me, I want to do something, I want to roll my sleeves up and, and kind of get involved, what sort of things can they do? So I would say that the intelligence community, which is multiple agencies, has been rated one of the best places to work. And we have people of all sorts of talents, uh, no matter what your interests are, whether it's law enforcement or analysis or support, like accounting and other things. I think there are job opportunities in the community, and I would encourage you to explore those opportunities. It's a great place to, to serve your country. But I would also say if you know that's not your thing, and if you you think there's an area of concern, I would particularly encourage you to reach out to the FBI if there's threats or you need partnership and a DHS as well. I guess I was also wondering, is there someone sitting there and they don't have very good cyber hygiene and you know so forth? Like, Do you always use a VPN? Do you use a particular search engine, a particular browser? Do you have two-factor authentication? What are some of those kinds of steps that they can take? So first, I would say for all your listeners, if you go out to the FBI and DHS's websites, they have some fantastic resources that can help you really strengthen your stuff. But what I've picked up on from the cyber experts, if you just make sure you have good email security, not clicking on the links, the spear phishing, that will go a long way. Your strong password as well and, and patching will really minimize the threat. I'm sure you know having a VPN and other things are great, but focus on the first three I talked about. 
before you do anything else. And what does the future hold for you? You know, I expect to stay here for quite some time. They have not announced a new director yet. And so I'm happy to continue to serve in this role. And then when they finally announce a new director, I will revert back to the deputy. This has been a great assignment. We have a lot of work to do. It's an important mission. And it's been a privilege to have been selected for this assignment. Tell our listeners a little bit about your journey from the military to the CIA to the FBI. Yep. Did ROTC, uh, went into the military, certainly enjoyed that, had a great experience, but I knew I had always wanted to be an FBI agent. What era was this? Is this the 90s? Uh, you're bringing me back. Yeah, Sorry. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was about 1995. Okay. <laughs> but there was a hiring freeze for the FBI. And so I had found an opportunity at CIA, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at CIA. But once the hiring freeze got lifted, I was called for an interview and was offered a job. And knowing that that's what I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure I did that. Otherwise, I'd feel I would regret missing the opportunity. And so that's how I eventually made it over to the FBI. You were never tempted to stay with the CIA or did you always want to twist rather than stick? I certainly was tempted. I enjoyed it. I worked with great people there, but I was afraid if I didn't try the, which what I wanted to do, I would always wonder everything. And it's worked out great because I've worked a lot with the CIA over my years in the military. So it's all been tied together. And what I would say to the listeners, figure out what you're passionate about because you can do that in a lot of places. And I think I've always been passionate about the national security work and I've been able to do that at the FBI. Final point is, is there anything that you would like to discuss or bring up that we haven't covered? Is there any particular ingredients that are an important part of the dish that makes up the NCSC or Maker Lando that we haven't been cooking with? <laughs> I would just say for NCSC, uh, we have a team that does a great job of bringing people together and that's not an easy talent or job to do. But I would say to your listeners that as I started off with, you know, what kind of keeps me up at night is the particularly the China threat. And to the extent you can educate yourself on that and defend yourself and build resiliency and just know that NCSC is here to help and play our role. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.